Hello everybody, welcome back to another brand new episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, I am your host, Simon, and this one has been written by George. It's called Chong Tsi Kyung. Um, I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that guide. There's not a, uh, right. There's no pronunciation guide on the title for this one, so it's a guess until I know better. Thanks, George, for writing it. If you're new here to the format, to the show, uh, welcome. Thank you for being here. It's uh, great to have you. Um, George will write me something. I'm going to read it. I've never read it before. I've actually no idea what this is about because the only title is the guy's name. So this could be a horrible one full of brutal murder or it could be the heists or something more light. Um, we're definitely going to find out. Although George has written a couple of savage ones for me lately. So I get the feeling we might have a little bit of murder in store. Which, um, yeah. That, I, I, w- I would say that would be fun, but that doesn't seem appropriate. Let's just crack on with it, shall we? It's the 23rd of May, 1996, in Hong Kong. Inside the recently completed Bank of China Tower, an army of well-heeled white-collar workers toiled away to keep the big arrows on their graphs pointing upwards. The days were long and tiring for this economic ensemble who counted down the seconds as the clock swung around to six o'clock. Quitting time. That is a long day. What time do they like? Wait, I assume these guys are like some stock traders or something, like graphs, or I guess they could be doing anything, but six o'clock's a long day. I remember like learning, like as a kid, you'd be like, I don't know, I studied business as my undergrad. You'd be like, what sort of careers can you do afterwards? You'd be like, oh, banking. And it's like, yeah, they'll work really, they'll work all the time. And you're like, oh my God. I mean, as a kid, that sounded good. And now I'm like, oh my God, I'm glad I don't do that. (laughs) It's like, now it's like six o'clock rolls around. So I better be at bloody home by six. (laughs) As soon as the clock struck six, thousands of men and women up and down the height of the tower let out a deep sigh of relief and began shuffling towards the ground floor. Their days had been long, hard, and tiring, and they just wanted to get home with as few dramatics and inconveniences as possible. None more so than Victor Lee Sarkoy. Victor Lee Sarkoy. Victor, I've got a pronunciation guide at the bottom here. Victor Lizeju. Lizeju. Oh my god, his name is so. Sometimes the spelling on the names is so different to how they're pronounced that it's like I'm definitely going to get that wrong. Like, Jew is Kwai. What is that about? <laughs> it's like, what is that about, Simon? It's just try being a language you don't speak. Who joined the caravan of fatigued financiers after an arduous day's toil? Oh, I got another note. I've got a long ass note. A clarification for Simon. The reason for translations occasionally being so separated from reality is colonialism. Oh, wait, not translations. Isn't this like, how do you say it? Like where the, the name, the pronunciation of the name. Um, there are two primarily trans, trans, to transliteration, that's the word I'm looking for, transliteration models that you'll be, you'll see employed for Mandarin. Wade Giles and Pinion. Wade Giles was developed in the 19th century by two Western men named, shockingly, Wade and Giles. Their approach to transliteration can be summarized as, this funny language is a bit tricky, isn't it? Oh, we're not having any of that mumbo jumbo. <laughs> that's how I imagine all colonists sound. Because they're like, what shall we do? We'll spread the glory of Britain everywhere. Uh, it didn't work so great with time. Uh, consequently, transliterations in this system can end up sounding only vaguely reminiscent of their original form, if not flatly incorrect. For example, Mao Zedong would become Mao Si Tung. Si Tung. 
Okay. Wade Giles is obsolete, but continues to persist in various ways. Pinion was developed in the 1950s by get this actual Chinese people and everything. What a radical concept. Generally, I opt for Pinion transliterations of Mandarin in my scripts, except in instances such as a name which is commonly known by its Wade Giles transliteration. And its Pinion transliteration, while more accurate, is different to the point of being unrecognizable. Cantonese also has a similar dynamic of the old, outdated transliteration system versus the new actually useful one but to spare this footnote becoming as long as the main video itself <laughs> you might have achieved that already by now george uh we shall save an explanation of cantonese for another video and now back to today's episode <laughs> it was actually longer than another any like any of my asides that's not true but where most of his colleagues drifted towards central mtr station and the managers drifted toward the taxi rank victor lee curved off toward the car park where he fell into the triple quilted luxury of a nissan president's rear seat because he was not just any banger he was the eldest son of lee Ka-shing. um it, pronounced exactly as you'd say it as an english speaker brilliant that's a lot easier than the other guy whose name sounds so different hong kong's richest man so i guess in hong kong nissan make luxury cars nissan japanese i feel like japanese they're japanese um but to me i didn't even know nissan made luxury cars nissan presidents victor lee zeju chauffeur began driving towards the family mansion in deep water bay road fortunately for victor lee the route was regular and familiar and he was able to slip into a light sleep as his chauffeur followed his regular route free from input from him unfortunately for victor lee the chauffeur was not the only person who was familiar with his route victor lee's serene sleep was interrupted when the car in front suddenly slammed on its brakes and forced the chauffeur to execute an emergency stop and he awakened with a violent jolt anger jointly erupted from both driver and passenger toward the idiot driver in front but was quickly replaced by fear as the car behind them leapt out into the other lane and screeched to a halt beside them and the car behind that quickly closed the gap and pulled in behind them boxing them in from all sides balaclava shrouded men carrying ak-47s piled from three cars and stormed towards victor lee's nissan president oh my god that's got to be so terrifying it's like yep and now the hostage situation this is the problem about like you're always like yeah being rich must be awesome like look at all this great stuff you've got a nissan <laughs> no, okay i know it's fancy you got like a fancy nissan you're cruising in the back you've got a chauffeur you're going over to your mansion and it's like yeah life seems good and then it's like yeah but you're also a highly like especially as the kid it's like because you're the kid of the youngest man they're gonna kidnap you and get a lot of money from old pops maybe get their own nissan one of them furiously began pulling at victor lee's door handle he tried it half a dozen times in quick succession before giving up and then he reported back to the gang leader that it was locked the leader then calmly marched around to the front of the car raised his ak-47 to the driver and barked a simple command to him open it now the driver hesitated petrified with fear and the assailant growing impatient and irate quickly swung his rifle over to the unoccupied passenger seat and put a single round through the windscreen the driver's ears rung in deafening pain but he just managed to make out a follow-up command that screamed at him i said now hurry up i'm kind of surprised like son of the richest man in hong kong doesn't have an armored limo like he doesn't i feel like i don't know do rich people have or is that just like no rich people have armored cars don't they like really like mega rich like richest people in the country like bill gates isn't driving around in a regular ass car is he he's got like an armored car or doesn't he i don't actually know and bill gates kids do they or do they just want to live normal ass lives but then you could be kidnapped because you're bill gates's son or daughter that's good that's intense 
I said, now hurry up. He fumbled around at the controls and eventually hit the door unlock button. The gang descended on the car like vultures on a fresh carcass and bundled Victor Lee into the boot of the car that they'd previously that had previously swung alongside them. The rest of the gang then piled into the passenger seats, and the leader paused to apologize to the driver for frightening him and asked if he wouldn't mind giving it an hour before he reported the kidnapping. What are you up to? It's like, Joe, may as well ask you. If you don't ask, you never know. Then they took off down the road, making sure to slow down and blend in with the traffic when they were out of visual range of all witnesses. Victor Lee remained in the boot, desperately trying to remove, maneuver his body around the tight confines that he found himself in. He began fumbling in the darkness around the edge of the boot, desperate to find some kind of release lever or any way of escape. But he had no luck. The stress and anxiety he, that consumed every cell and fiber of his being only continued to crescendo. Did they plan on killing him? Was this revenge for someone as his, that his dad had wronged? Endless possibilities and betrayal played in Victor's mind, none of which had a happy ending. In this situation, you've got to assume, like, if they wanted to kill you, you'd be dead already. They wouldn't bother kidnapping you and getting them you in their car and all this stuff. They'd have just killed you because why why baff around with all this stuff? It's kidnapping and it's for money. Surely. That's the only explanation. But also, are you going to be rational state of mind in the boot of the car? And also, my dude, they're gonna have checked like they're gonna have put one of their crony dudes in the boot of the car and be like, yo! Jeff, can you get out of this boot? Is there any lever or anything in there that have checked it really thoroughly? The one way I've heard that you should escape, and I don't know where I heard this from, or probably just saw it in a movie, but you take out the jack, because there's probably going to be a jack like somewhere in there for, you know, if it breaks down, you put the spare tire on. You get that jack out, and then you put it on the ground, and then you gradually, like, winch up the jack into the boot, the top of the boot, and at some point, that jack's going to just like, pop the boot open and break the lock. Because it's a jack, it can lift up a car, it sure can pop off the boot. So there you go. Just saved your life, didn't I? His pontificating was eventually dispelled when he felt the car take a sharp turn. The ride became suddenly much bumpier, and he felt them moving much more slowly. He assumed because they'd come off-road. He turned his mental attention instead to processing these new events, but before he could reach any conclusions, the car slid to a halt. He heard the four doors of the car open, shut, muffled chattering, and footsteps scurrying all around him. Then the sound of a heavy diesel engine that crawled closer and closer towards him. Oh my god. At that point, I'd be like, are we at a junkyard? Are, we, are you just going to crush this car with me inside it? That would be f***ing terrifying. Suddenly, the darkness that filled his vision was interrupted by a blinding light as the boot of the car was flung open, and he was hooked up from the car and bundled into the back of a cargo van. At that point, I'd be like, oh, okay, good. We're not being crushed inside a car, because that, oh my god, that would be a horrible way to go. Two of the men climbed in with him, pulled the door shut, and gagged him, blindfolded, and bound his arms behind his back with rope. He was given some bizarrely reassuring words. Listen, rich boy, we just want your daddy's money, yeah? To be a good little boy and play ball, and we'll make sure you get back to daddy with all your limbs still attached. Right? Please note that the quotes in today's episode are generally far heavier laced with blue language than I have depicted. But for the sake of mine and Simon's delicious sweet monetization, I've omitted them. Thank you, George. That's very considerate. I just made an episode. I was recording another episode of uh, another show I do called Decoding the Unknown. It's another podcast. You can check it out. Um, and the first, the literal first word in that script was Nazi. And I'm like, oh, I guess I'm doing this one for free. With that, the kidnappers burnt their getaway car and disappeared into the new territories.
The next day, May the 24th, the lead kidnapper woke up bright and early just before the break of dawn. He enjoyed a hearty breakfast of iron Buddha tea and several cigarettes and set out to seize his day. First item was on his to-do list was the important business of meeting at a particular mansion in Deepwater Bay. He grabbed everything he needed to make a compelling sales pitch, a Soviet TT-33 pistol and several pounds of explosives jerry-rigged to his chest in a crude homemade bomb vest. Whoa, it just got taken up a degree. <laughs> kidnapping and now we're on to like suicide bombing he promptly arrived and was warmly welcomed inside the lee family mansion he was asked if he would like some tea but declined and was shown to lee Kashing's office he cut straight to business he showed him a polaroid picture of Vic photo of victor lee tied up next to a copy of today's newspaper opened up his jacket to reveal the bomb vest and said if you want to live with your complete family again i need a billion dollars cash and no funny business or i pull the court this guy doesn't have a good understanding of finance is he talking Hong Kong dollars? Because that's about 10 times less. That's $100 million US. But if he's talking about $100 million, uh, a billion dollars US, or like 10 billion Hong Kong dollars, does he really think that rich people just have a billion dollars in cash? Rich people don't have that much money. It's like, I mean, they obviously have a ton of money, but it's in assets. No one's just keeping a billion dollars in cash. It's either in shares of their company or in uh, other assets that are less liquid than cash. What's going on? <laughs> I guess, theoretically, a very wealthy person could have $100 million in cash, but I'd still be surprised. Surprisingly, Li Kaxing made no attempts to negotiate and immediately and calmly agreed to his terms. If you're finding it odd, dear viewers, how calm Li Kaxing was between the kidnapping, the losing of a billion dollars and the pistol in his face, you're not the only one. The kidnapper himself found the serenity of the situation odd and asked Kaxing how he could remain so calm in such a stressful situation. He responded, because it's my fault this time. I have such a high reputation in Hong Kong, but I have no precautions at all. For example, if I go to the beach early in the morning, I will drive my car to the new territories at 5 a.m. in the morning. Basically, a few cars can surround me on the roads, and I have no precautions at all. I really need to be more careful, and you have made me aware. I'll be like, at this point, I'd rather him be terrified, because this like cool calculating shit has got that like Walter White vibe, where it's just like, he knows. Mm, I'm gonna die. This is not gonna end well for me. I've been outsmarted and I don't even know how. Despite his willingness to comply, Lee Chat Cashing did not have a billion dollars simply lying around his mansion, so he offered the kidnapper $40 million in petty cash that he had was able to assemble since learning of his son's kidnapping and the presumed ransom that was coming. The kidnapper made a counteroffer. He was nothing if not a superstitious man. Owing to the number four being unlucky in Chinese culture, he offered Lee Cashing a discount of $2 million on the deposit, which he accepted, which brought the total ransom up to $1.038 Hong billion Hong Kong dollars which is 135 million us dollars oh okay i understand so he wanted the 40 okay so we're talking hong kong dollars here so 135 million usd and we're talking that the 40 million that he has in petty cash is just going to be taken as a deposit but he's actually going to take 38 million so he still wants his billion he's just like yeah, i'll take this cash because that's what you have now <laughs> dude Li Kaxing also asked for a day to arrange the ransom, to which the kidnapper agreed, and the two parted cordially, as could be in the circumstances. The next day, Li Kaxing received a call from the kidnapper. He instantly recognized his familiar voice, and he had instructions for him. You've got my money. Good. At some point today, we will come to your mansion in a blue Toyota Corolla. One person comes outside to make the exchange. You or anyone else, I don't care. If I see two or more people, the deal is off and we leave. If I see any police, we kill your son and as many of your family as we can before the police take us down. Got it? 
And that is exactly what had happened. True to their word, the kidnapper and his gang arrived at the mansion, and in a surprisingly cordial exchange, $1.038 billion dollars is counted victor lee was released from the car and the gang sped away a hundred and thirty five i mean I, a billion dollars is absurd it's kind of like dr evil insane um but like still 135 million dollars in cash does that even fit in a car a million dollars fits in a in a shopping bag which is kind of crazy and surprising i don't know what the largest note in hong kong is hold on whoa they have a thousand dollar note oh wait but that's only a hundred dollars or something so let's assume it's roughly the same size. The money is going to be about the value-wise is going to be about the same volume as uh, Hong Kong. So that's 135 shopping bags full of money. Does that fit in a blue Toyota Corolla? It's kind of intense. Days turned into weeks in the Lee household, and the family began to move on and get back to their normal lives. Lee Kashing was happy to simply have his son return unharmed, money be damned. The stress and anxiety that permeated the air and conversation during these agonizingly stressful few days was replaced by serenity and calmness. The peace was shattered, however, when several weeks later a call was forwarded to his office, and a hauntingly familiar voice sat on the other end of the line. It was the kidnapper. Kashing instantly turned pale as a bedsheet as dread consumed him. His heart began smashing against his ribcage 200 times a minute as he ran hypothetical situations through his head none of which predicted a happy ending to this phone call wait how they don't have anyone and surely he's like increased his security since having to pay out a billion dollars had another family member been taken surely not he had upped all their security with what he thought was a blank check there we go but why else would he be calling nervously he summoned the breath from his lungs to ask the kidnapper what he wanted now terrified of the answer he would receive why are you calling lee kashing asks Mr. Lee, can you teach me how to invest my rent's money? No, dude. You can't be f***ing serious. That is... I, I, don't, I don't even have words. <laughs> what are you doing? Ladies and gentlemen in the audience, now let's all take a moment to pause and fully appreciate what we just heard. This man had secured a billion dollar ransom from Lee Kashing and now called him up to politely ask for tips on how to invest it. Lee Kashing responded much more politely than I would have done in this situation. Uh, it has to be said, telling the kidnapper, I'm afraid I do not have an answer. I could teach you to be a good man if you asked other things, but you do not. You have only one path. Fly far and high, or else your ending will be a sad one. Uh, there's a note. In this business, we call this foreshadowing. Oh my god, this guy is Walter White. <laughs> You're goddamn right. He's gonna... He's gonna, like, set those watches. And, uh, I just get... This is some, like, rich people, like, supervillain shit, right? He's just gonna come back and end this guy's world. At least I hope. I mean, I, I don't know. He didn't. He just kidnapped and he didn't murder anyone. But I just get the feeling this is going to be like some... Uh, what's that movie? Taken. I have a very special set of skills. And in this case, Lee Cushing's like, I have an extraordinary amount of money. <laughs> You're going to pay. But just who was the kidnapper? I hear you all screaming. His name was... Pronunciation guideline... Chirung Tsi Kung, a man who ransomed the children of business moguls for billions of dollars, a man who stole hundreds of millions of dollars from armored vans, a man who to some was a working class hero and a model Robin Hood, and to others was a terror of the 1990s, a man who to others is simply the epitome of pre-handover Hong Kong celebrity gangster. If you thought Yip Kai Foon's story was crazy, ladies and gents in the audience, buckle up because you ain't seen nothing yet yes yip kaifun i believe has gone out by the time i'm recording this we're quite far ahead recording on casual criminalist that was the a previous episode that george wrote for me 
Early life. Born on the 7th of April 1955, Chong Tsi. Oh, God. Chirung Tsi Kang was born to. Let's just call him Chirung from now on. Because. Oh, my. I uh, was born to a farming family in the mountainous area of Shaoxing. There's no pronunciation guide. What am I supposed to do, George? Guanji province on the Chinese mainland. His family were dirt poor during his infant years, and his sister died of starvation during the Great Leap Forward. His father. <laughs> the greatly forward the ironically most ironically named thing ever his father eventually smuggled his family into hong kong to try and find a better life for themselves they settled in causeway bay and Chirung attended primary school in hong kong between the ages of six and eleven he was a bright and hard-working high achiever in school but was constantly bullied and harassed for being newly arrived as an immigrant from the mainland eventually he learned that might was right and overcame his bullying by punching his way to the leadership of the toughest gang in school his father was a poor and humble man by birth and had little formal education and even less money to support his family's new life in hong kong after their arrival fortunately however he did so happen to have quite the knowledge of and interest in traditional chinese medicine so after working as a laborer living modestly and saving what money he could he made the undeniably pragmatic choice to open a medicinal herb store on temple street yao ma Te. he also ran an illegal ziva lottery to help supplement his family income i could make a joke about gambling and chinese medicine here can i could be like well if you're a crook both of these things totally fit for you life began to improve for chirchurung after opening their medicinal herb store and lottery racket they were by no means rich but through hard work and labor they had escaped escaped the worst depths of crushing poverty did they though did they didn't assist to die in the great leap forward that sounds like the worst depths of poverty or was that his i don't remember who that was doesn't matter let's carry on they had earned enough money to enjoy life from time to time and churung eventually dropped out of school at the age of 11 to help his father run the family business oh i see the problem with using his <laughs> i've been shortening it but it clearly confused the father and the son haven't i because <laughs> i'm shortening the name because it's hard uh he received the remainder of his education on the streets of yao mate here he was exposed to all kinds of vices and corrupting influences he was first arrested at the age of 12 for pickpocketing and by the age of 16 he was already a 14k triad member is that i don't know what that is it must be some sort of gangster rank between the ages of 12 and 20 he was arrested over 15 times for assault theft robbery conspiracy to commit robbery and a plethora of other minor minor offenses <laughs> robbery assault minor okay i guess assault can be minor you can punch someone in the face and say that's a fairly minor crime but robbery robbery's not theft robbery's like i can't remember what it, what it's with but it's like with a malice or aggression or something right Chirong Tsi Kang's parents had not abandoned hope for their young son to go on the straight and narrow, however, and they arranged for him to be taken out, taken on as a tailor's apprentice by a family friends in Yamate. Surprisingly, the tailor, who took him under his wing, spoke very highly of him in later interviews, claiming Tsi Kang took to the work like a bird to flight and was nothing but a hard-working, diligent, and enterprising employee. This was no temporary vocation for Chirung Tsi Krung either. He began to see his pockets fill up with money, and he liked what he saw. 
Seeing a more comprehensive market in serving Hong Kong's wealthy expatriate community, he took his time to he took time to learn English, attended two adult language learning courses at a local high school, and began to save money. Eventually, he had five thousand Hong Kong dollars that he'd saved up, and he opened a store in Mid Levels, a wealthy district of Hong Kong Island inhabited by wealthy foreigners and the local elite. Life continued its solid upward trajectory for Chirung Tsi Kurung, who by now had completely abandoned his petty criminality. His fifty thousand Hong Kong dollar investment quickly became a hundred thousand Hong Kong dollars cash in his pocket, and he met and married the love of his life, Loi Yi Fong. But being the wrinkly brains that you are, dear viewers, you've no doubt deducted by now that this honest streak did not last forever. Yeah, <laughs> you're watching a true crime show. Something's gonna change. This channel is not called The Casual Couturier, and you do not click on a video about Hong Kong's finest tailor. Sure enough, it didn't take long for Chirung Tsi Krung to surrender to the actions, to the seductions of his old habits, when he found his climbing of the economic ladder to be a bit too slow for his liking. Yeah, it's like, yeah, I'm doing well. I wish I was just doing better. It's like, yeah, I mean, he's, you know, he's having a successful business, but he's just like, man, it's just not fast enough. Come on, we got to get some crime on the case. One day in late 1989, Wan Fanchi, an old friend of Chirung Tsi Krung's criminal past who had never abandoned criminality, just happened to visit his store to check in on his old pal. Drinks and pleasantries were shared aplenty in the pair's reunion, but one anecdote in particular stuck in Tsi Krung's mind. If you want to become prosperous, you have got to go the wrong way and have a careful plan. We are just like tailors. We need to be seamless. But unlike tailors, our rewards are vast and considerable. Yes, but also, they're vast and considerable, but also, also potentially prison. With that phrase, a seed was planted in his mind, a seed that would be watered and nurtured by Chung Tsi Krung and Lo Yang Feng's own materialistic desires, and it didn't take long for that seed to blossom into a verdant flower of armored van robbery. Armored van robberies. Chung Tsi Krung's first armored van robbery occurred at 12.30 p.m. on the 22nd of February 1990. The police received a distress call from a security company pleading for help. One of their armored vans left the cargo terminal at Kai Tech International Airport at 11.30 a.m. and was supposed to call every half an hour to report that all was well. They'd spent the last half hour trying to get information. They called the car phone in the armored van, the personal phones of the crew, and they even called the family members of the crew to try and get any information. And finally, fearing the van had been robbed, they decided to get the police involved. If I'm like running an armored van company and it's like, all right, guys, call in every half an hour to check in, and I didn't get that call, and then I phoned their van, and then I phoned one of their mobile phones, I'd be like, yep, we are fed. <laughs> it's like, you know what's going on. You know, they've been robbed. Call the police then. Don't be like, yeah, yeah, should we phone Peter's family? Just, uh, you know, maybe he had something going on that day, even though we got a call from him half an hour ago saying he was in the van. What were you possibly thinking, security company? Their fears were confirmed at 13.30 when the police received a call from a clearly distressed and exhausted security guard. They explained how shortly after leaving Kaitek Airport, the car in front of them slammed on its brakes and five large balaclava-clad men, all with pistols, piled out of the car and began screaming at them. They barked at the driver to unlock the doors of the van, then put his hands up in the air well away from the steering wheel. The driver and passenger were pulled from the armored van and bundled into the back. Chirung Tsi Krung, I'm just going to call him Chirung again because his dad's out of the picture and we're not going to get confused. It's the main dude from today's episode, Chirung. Chirung and one of his associates then firebombed their original car, took the guard's place in command of the armored van, and the other three robbers jumped in the bag to gag, blindfold, and bind the security guards. Isn't the point of an armored van that it's armored? Like, 
if you're driving an armored van and anyone can just get in with a pistol, what's the point of it being an armored van? You may as well just have a regular van. Aren't you supposed to be like, no, I'm not getting out. It's an armored van. You can shoot it, but it's not going to come through. And I know, obviously, armor doesn't last forever and you can have armor-piercing rounds and whatnot, but surely this sort of basic robbery is exactly what these vans are for preventing, right? They drove to a temporary housing estate, now Megabox Mall, in Kowloon Bay, just a few hundred yards from the Kitek cargo terminal. They moved the van's prize, 40 boxes of Rolex watches, into another truck that they had stored waiting. Finally, they firebombed the armored truck, sat the bound guards in a comfortable position on the ground, and disappeared. Today's haul for the robbery, Rolex watches worth 30 million Hong Kong dollars, or 4 million US dollars. Oh my god. I would say that's a lot of Rolex watches, and it is. But with the prices of watches today, it's probably not even that many. <laughs> Personally, I'd be quite happy with a 30 million Hong Kong dollar payday myself, but this was not the case for Chirung. He was annoyed that he had simply let himself get distracted by procuring big-ticket items with no regard to how they'd be actually fenced or liquidated. Fencing goods of any type and value is a risk, as Tsi Kyung's associate and old friend of the channel, Yip Kai Foon, would have happily attested to. Oh, these two dudes know each other, or his friend knows the, uh, there, there, there you go. He found that he struggled to sell the watches for their retail value. People expected a discount for handling stolen Rolexes. Consequently, he vowed only to rob cash in the future. Probably smart. The second and final armored van robbery Chirung and his crew would carry out occurred on the 13th of July 1991. Following a similar pattern as before, Republic National Bank truck carrying banknotes from Taiwan leaves Kaitek International Airport cargo depot at 8.15am. As soon as it was out of sight of the cargo depot, it was pounced on and had its route blocked by a car. Three armed masked men poured out of the car and using pistols encouraged the drivers to disembark and comply. How do you know what's in these armored vans, though? Like, if you're robbing an armored van, it could be Rolexes, it could be cash. It could be an imperial code. It could also be just really important documents that have no, like, value to thieves. It's weird, right? The truck was far more heavily guarded this time, with four guards who carried a total of two shotguns between them on board. This heavier security was to no avail, however, as all the guards made the quite pragmatic choice that their life was worth considerably more than some banker's profits and complied fully. Yeah, I feel, I'm pretty sure I told this story before, but when I worked as a supermarket as a kid, they were like, yo, if someone comes in and wants to rob the place, do not press the alarm, comply, give them the money. We don't want you to be killed. And I'm like, do you really think I was going to press that alarm? I'm giving that money straight to them. If you were like, be a hero, just say no, shut the till, and press that alarm button. I, I'd be like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't say that because I'd still want the job, but I just know if we were robbed, I'd be like, f*** that shit, guys. They can have all the money. And they'd be like, they'd be like you're a coward. I'd be like, well, it's not my f***ing money, is it? <laughs> Even if it was my money, I'd be like, take it. Not because I'm a coward, just I like living. Like a real hero. They then firebombed the first car again and drove to the newly computed building site of Tate's Khan Tunnel, where they transferred their loot and the two shotguns, which they decided to keep into a truck that was left waiting. Keeping those shotguns is a mistake. Because they got numbers and records, and if they find those two shotguns, they'll be like, those are the two shotguns from a robber. If they find the cash, they might be like, I don't know, it's just cash. It's just cash. We weren't tracking it. But those two shotguns, they know it was you. You're going to get in big trouble. Get rid of the shotguns. You've already stolen loads of money. Buy some shotguns. They then firebombed the armored truck and left the guards in a comfortable position to be found or wiggle free on their own accord. Total haul for this robbery, 170 million Hong Kong dollars, 22 million dollars USD in cash, and two Remington Model 870 shotguns. You got 22 million dollars in cash. American. You can buy as many Remington Model 870 shotguns as you want. It doesn't matter how expensive they are. There's probably not that many in the world. 
This winning streak would not last forever, however. Chirung had made mistakes, large glaring mistakes that would soon lead the police straight to him and see him thrown before a judge before he could commit another robbery. But how? I hear you scream in the audience. His plan sounded watertight, did it not? He changed vehicle multiple times, destroyed evidence. What went wrong? Loads of stuff. This isn't like some genius supervillain car robbery. He could have been caught on camera. They could have seen the license plate on the car that he uh, that he pulled up in. Maybe that was stolen. Maybe they can trace it to a theft earlier, which was caught on camera. There's tons of ways they could get caught. Indeed, Chirung was extremely meticulous in making sure that he did not leave any evidence behind, even going so far as to have his crew superglue their fingers to avoid leaving prints. Smart. But it was not meticulous enough, because when the wrinkled brains at the Hong Kong Police Force CID began examining what evidence they did have, they uncovered a paper trail that pointed squarely at Si Kung. Firstly, both robberies were connected by having almost identical modus operandi. Then detectives, that's circumstantial though. Then detective noticed that both robberies hit the highest value cargo moving, moved on their respective days, leading them to believe that an insider was involved. Okay, so that's how they find out what's in the vans. As what were the odds of two random robberies just happening to hit the most valuable vans each time? With that in mind, they created a very large proverbial Venn diagram and saw who, if anyone, happened to land in the middle. They discovered only a single person of interest, Lo Yang Fei who you might remember as Chirung's wife. Uh-oh. <laughs> Guys, this is like far from a watertight plan. Your wife, who works at the airport, is telling you which security vans to rob. How do you not know this is going to go wrong? Not only was Liu Yangfang employed by both companies when they were robbed, she was employed in the same role as a data input officer. In both companies, she had full knowledge of the timings and routes of every armored van. She could see what goods they carried, she could see the amount the security guards posted to each van, and the amount of firearms being carried. Needless to say, the police found this somewhat suspicious. Yeah, it's mad suspicious. You don't have to be a wrinkled brain to know that one. The police knew she couldn't be directly involved in the robberies, as the security guards interviewed all unanimously agreed that only men robbed them, and what's more, she had a watertight alibi, being at work during both robberies. Suspicion then naturally moved to her close male friends and family. The police began running background checks for Chirung, among others, and found that his tailors had been robbed 18 times in the few years it had been open. Either Chirung had biblically bad luck, or he was as bent as a nine-bob note. Having a correct hunch that Chirung could be their man, they arrested him and brought him in for a lineup in front of security guards. Luckily for him, however, no one fingered him and he was released on a 10,000 Hong Kong dollar, 1,200 US dollar bail. Unluckily for Chirung, the following day, one of the guards returned to the police station. He claimed, in fact, that he did recognize the man and gestured towards a photo of him. He claims that he hadn't recognized him at the time, as the lineup brought back all of the traumatic memories of the robbery, and he was completely mentally distracted. But as he left the station, he thought about it for the rest of the day and he was completely 100% sure that it was him. Trung was immediately rearrested and charged with the robberies. Following a short trial on the 12th of September 1991, he was found guilty of armed robbery. He's going to get a long sentence. These are fairly serious crimes and amounts of money. 20 years, maybe? He was sentenced to 18 years. Not bad. Not a bad guess. In this channel's familiar stomping grounds of Stanley Maximum Security Prison. Yes. Uh, was it in the Yip Kai Foon episode where the guy was escaping from there? The loot from these robberies was also never recovered, so if our Hong Kong viewers happen to ever see a tall white man hanging around villages in new territories with a metal detector and a shovel, don't mind me, I've suddenly developed a passion for archaeology. What, what metal are you going to detect? It's all just paper. Although you go down and you like find 40 boxes of Rolexes, you'll be like, god damn. <laughs> Can't do much with these because they're stolen, but I'm going to have a nice watch forever. Acquittal. 
I imagine you're thinking now, dear viewers, that it was a pretty open and shut case. Chirung had been positively ID'd by one of the security guards, and there is a mountain of circumstantial evidence to support the claim. But no! Through some legal trickery. Wait, wasn't he convicted? Uh, found guilty of armed robbery. Okay. Uh, through some legal trickery, clever manipulation of the facts, and a healthy application of expensive lawyers, which he could now afford for absolutely no reason at all. <laughs> Uh, Karung would eventually see the verdict overturned and return to the streets a free and technically innocent man. <laughs> technically innocent. Definitely. Technically. Cast your mind back a minute or so, dear viewers, to the testimony of the security guard who ID'd Chirung. Remember how he had returned the following day to ID him? That is exactly what Chirung's lawyers exploited to build their case to argue an unfair conviction. He kept attempting to appeal his sentence again and again, and time after time he was met with rejection and denial. The judiciary's quite reasonable logic was that if the testimony of the guard was a bit shaky, the amount of circumstantial evidence that was quite clearly pointing in his direction was more than enough to hold it together. No, but if you throw out the eyewitness, then you just have circumstantial evidence, which is... I'm not sure that's enough. Eventually, the stars aligned for him. His case was heard by a forgiving judge who was in a good mood, and his case was formally repealed, and after 3.5 years in prison, he was released on June the 22nd, 1995. Kidnappings Churung was a free man once again. And while he had no intention of returning to life on the straight and narrow, he had no intention of returning to the apparently meager paydays that his career in armored van robbery previously yielded into his bank account. Didn't he make 22 million US dollars in one robbery? <laughs> Dude, you got high expectations, mate. I mean, clearly he does because he, he, he managed to kidnap someone for like 125 million dollars successfully. It's obviously he's got high intentions. I mean, $160 million for a day's work. Chump change. Whoever could be satisfied with that tiny sum of money. <laughs> George and I, same page. Certainly not Chirung, that's for sure, who had spent his three and a half years in prison, Doman, dreaming of bigger, better, and more profitable criminal enterprises than humble, armored van robbery. The what was easy for him. Hong Kong was the richest city on earth, full of billionaires. Just kidnap them and their children. Easy. Got a note here. It's been a while since we had a note. When listening to Churung's statements and comments on the matter himself, this discussion is actually where you see a hell of a lot of his anti-rich, pro-proletarian ideology come through. Except, this is the, the, the irony with these things, right? It's like, yo, 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 you're like an anti-rich, go-proletariat kind of dude. And it's like, yeah, but you, you're super unhappy with $22 million. How are you anti-rich? You just want to be rich yourself and are jealous of all the people who are rich. No? Ah... <laughs> He rarely talks about billionaires of Hong Kong paying their ransom because they love their family. Oh no, that was a regular human emotion. And individuals with the cutthroat instincts to make it to such levels of wealth anything but human in his eyes. Instead, he discusses how they would pay up because they were important to the business, with many of Hong Kong's billionaires promoting their family members to senior and critical positions in the business. Having brushed shoulders with the odd billionaire from time to time, I'll be the first to admit that the ultra-wealthy's connections to reality can be a bit shaky at times, but I feel that uh, Karung was taking it to a very extreme and dark place here yeah agrees of course people are super rich like that their connection to reality it's not like their connection to reality is wrong it's just they have a different connection to the world 
than the rest of us non-billionaires, because their life is completely different. The how was what really consumed Chirung's time in prison. Which people to kidnap? How to kidnap them? What tools would you need? Who could he depend on for his crew? Would security be heavy, etc.? I won't bore you all with the day-to-day -to -day -to account of his musings from inside the prison, but just know that by the time he was finally released in June 1995, he was very well prepared. Another note. Fun extra little tidbit for you. Remember Yip Kai Fiend's two mates who fled when he got shot? Dude, George, you underestimate how you overestimate how much I remember. <laughs> I've read a lot of a lot of crime since then. One of those was Chung Chung Tsi Kyung, who was working with Kai Fiend to smuggle equipment into Hong Kong for his own kidnapping operation. All of these criminals, they're all just tied together. They're all involved doing their little criminal stuff. We are already very familiar with Chirung's first kidnapping, where on the 23rd of May 1996, Victor Lee was kidnapped and ransomed for 1.038 billion Hong Kong dollars. I got another note, which, depending on your source, could still be history's biggest ever ransom. It is an extraordinary amount of money, and it actually worked, which uh, is kind of scary. And after this, the Chirung family were living a life more reminiscent of that of the Qing Emperor. They lived in an enormous 3,000 square foot apartment in Ho Man Tin. Another note. Shockingly, this is actually huge for Hong Kong. I'm like, yeah, I mean, a 3,000 square foot is a huge apartment. But uh, it's what, like 300 and something square meters? So it's a big, I mean, it's a big house, let alone apartments. But like, considering that this guy has 125 mil, that's not actually that large. Decorated with life-size Buddha statues made from real gold, sphinx statues carved in the likeness of Lu Yang Fang, champagne fountains in the kitchen, and enough marble to restore the Colosseum. <laughs> George adds, And here's me being impressed when my Hong Kong friends doesn't have to just doesn't have to shit where they shower. <laughs> yeah. Hong Kong's like famously tiny apartments and stuff, because there's lots of people and no space, right? Chirung drove around the streets of Hong Kong in a bright yellow Lamborghini Diablo Roadster. A Hong Kong celebrity in his own right now, he partied with Jackie Chan and many other famous faces. His family traveled the world, touring Asia, Africa, Europe, and the Americas. They stayed at the most expensive hotels and handed out $10,000 tips to street painters as they went. And another note, because half this page is literally notes. It's also speculated during the sign that Chirung began an anti-government terrorist operation. I mean, you've got to spend your money somewhere, as not saying you don't start terrorist organizations if you're rich. As his coming into fame and fortune just happens to coincide with a serious rise in petrol bomb attacks at Stanley Prison tra and trucks and heavy goods vehicles committing hit and runs on police booths and checkpoints, and this fad just happened to fade after his eventual arrest. Also, how are you living such a high-profile life? Like, if you're a... I mean, unless you're like Pablo Escobar and... And I just imagine, like, and you've got, like, government officials in your pocket and stuff, which I don't imagine is so prevalent in Hong Kong as it is in, like, Colombia. Uh, how are you living this life? Someone's going to be like, yo, where did that money come from? And why isn't the guy, there's, where's the criminal investigation? What's going on? How does this guy successfully get away with this and then live some sort of mega turbo lifestyle? I don't get it. So, what could possibly drive Chirung to put all of this on the line and risk another kidnapping when he was already over a billion dollars in profit? Well, don't forget, Chirung had absolutely got away with this scot-free. Li Kaxing had never called the police and never would. The answer? It's gambling. Oh, is he going to gamble it all away? That's so sad. Gambling's 
fucking horrible. Chirung was an obsessive and compulsive gambler. The casino Lisboa in Macau was as much a home to him as his family's apartment in Homantin. At its worst, he managed to lose 20 million Hong Kong dollars in a single sitting. After a while, his fortune was quite simply nearly spent, and he had to get more money. So inevitably, with his old trade as a tailor being unable to keep him up to a standard of which he'd now become accustomed, he blew the dust of his old plans and went plotting more kidnappings. The next target was Sun Huan Kai Properties Chairman Gao Binjiang. Oh my god. Okay. Oh, okay. I did okay with the pronunciation. Not bad. I mean, probably terrible, but it sort of looks like what George wrote for me. Who was kidnapped by Chirung and his gang on September the 29th, 1997. This kidnapping largely followed the same pattern as Victor Lee's kidnapping, with a few differences in execution and difficulties as a result. If I was a super rich Hong Kong dude, and my mate, who's another super rich Hong Kong dude, had his, kid- his son kidnapped and then ransomed for like 100 million US dollars... I'll be like, guess who else is getting better security for his family? (laughs) This time, they had kidnapped the billionaire proper rather than one of his children. This surprisingly gave them significantly less leverage than kidnapping an heir. It was conceivable that Victor Lee could have become more trouble than he was worth, and the gang would simply have killed him and sought another opportunity. They couldn't kill Guo Bing Yexiang, as any prospect of ever being paid would go with him, and Bing Jiang knew this. Furthermore, Guo Bingsheng was significantly less compliant than Victor Lee and his father had been. They initially demanded a $2 billion ransom, and he flatly refused this, his only counter-proposal being that they release him immediately and that he'd think no more of it. Oh my god. <laughs> that is so intense. It's like, yes, you absolutely have two options. You can ransom me and attempt to get $2 billion Hong Kong dollars out of me, or you can release me and I won't destroy your life. I won't come after you and your family and make them pay. This is some super villain shit and I love it. Chirung's response to these issues was torture. Grao Bingsheng was placed inside a 4 by one foot crate and left curled up for days. He was never let out of the box until he became more agreeable, and he was left in the small crate to eat, sleep, drink, and defecate. On October the 3rd, after six days inside the box, he gave in, and negotiations began. They agreed on a $600 million, $80 million US dollar ransom, and after making the call to his family to organize the money, he was released from the box. It's important viewers that, remember the, that we remember the toll that this torture took on Cheng. The poor man suffered greatly during this ordeal, and he found himself emotionally scarred, being all but a shut-in in the immediate wake of the kidnapping. He was diagnosed with PTSD and depression, and it took over a year of daily intensive psychological treatment and counseling for him to be able to return to something resembling his normal self. Still to this day, he suffers from occasional night terrors and claustrophobia. Downfall and arrest. Trung's downfall, downfall came as quick as his rise. One moment he was the darling of the Hong Kong underworld, a celebrity gangster had totally gotten away with it. He had cars, money, and the next minute he was being tied against a post in Guangdong to face a firing squad. Oh shit, they're firing squad in Hong Kong? Oh my. Like the cliched downfall arc of any good mobster movie, Chirung fall, Chirung's fall came because he got too greedy and he got too complacent. He made sloppy mistakes and assumed that just because he had been able to manipulate the legal system once, he'd be able to do it again. His downfall came when he began planning his third kidnapping. Now, this was to be a big one, bigger than any of the two that he'd carried out before and more expensive to boot. For this, he penned a very specific shopping list. AK-type rifles, 4,000 rounds of 7.62 by 39 millimeter ammunition, 
2,000 detonators, 700 meters of fuses, crates of tear gas and explosive grenades, and the piece de resistance, 1,000 kilograms of explosives. The context at home, dear audience, this is roughly the same explosive yield as a V2 rocket. Holy shit, is he planning on taking down the government? And how is someone buying all of this stuff and not getting on some f***ing watch list? With all this money, he's a high-profile guy. What's happening? Shockingly, he managed to find the bulk of this shopping list seemingly rather easily. On January the 8th, 1998, his first shipment arrives in the Siwan docks from a country I shall mention because their immigration department is already crabby with me enough as it is. <laughs> but here's a clue. It's not China or Russia. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. There's a note for me here. <laughs> and George has just left a private one for me telling me which country it was. And it wasn't the country I thought. In this internal ship, in this initial shipment was 800 kilograms of explosives, several crates of bullets, and a healthy sprinkling of AK-type rifles. This cache is immediately loaded onto trucks, snuck past the dock security, and hidden in an old village house in Ma Lung. Uh, oh my god, pronunciation. <laughs> it, it's hidden in some place in Hong Kong. Or China, maybe. Who knows? It's a, it's a, they're hiding their stuff. Reports are mixed on what Chirung actually planned to do with such a healthy cache of weapons. Some of his associates interviewed after his downfall say he eventually planned an assault on Stanley Prison to rescue his comrades, including our favorite gold robber Yip Kai Fane. Others state that he was planning some kind of campaign against Tung Chi Hua, the chief executive of Hong Kong. Uh, whether this campaign would have been a typical kidnapping or drifted into the realm of terrorism, uh, we can only speculate. Whatever his intentions with this healthy injection of armaments into his organization, Zhurong needed to get his crew back together, so he crossed the borders of the Chinese mainland to gather his followers. His first stop was Guangzhou to find Hu Jishu, the number two in his criminal enterprise. They spent a day together in Guangzhou, drinking, catching up, and chewing the fat, before making their way to the Imperial Hotel in Shenzhen on January the 16th. They stay here for several days, making plans and gathering their comrades, but a problem starts to emerge. As each day passes, Chirung spends less and less time at the planning table and more time at the window, twitching the curtains, getting increasingly paranoid that he's being watched by the police. I don't understand how he cannot be watched by the police by now. He's an extremely lavish lifestyle with apparently no legally gained money. Uh, Surely you just got to assume the police are watching. The twist here, folks, is he wasn't wrong. I don't think there's a twist. I mean, like, the police should be watching this guy. The police have been tailing him constantly since he left Siwan Docks. Chirung's fame was proving a double-edged sword, because as soon as a dock walker saw, worker saw him entering the docks with the truck, they called the police, who in turn had been sticking to him like glue ever since. Not only had they been tracking his movements, but plainclothes officers saw through high-power binoculars as he hid his cash in Ma So Long. They then tailed him right up to the border and then handed the operation over to their comrades in Guangdong. After humoring his well-founded paranoia, Chirung and his ever-swelling gang relocated to Zhuhai and stayed in an apartment in the Seaview Garden Tower block. His paranoia continued to crescendo, so he relocated again to Zhuhai. Golf club reasoning that plainclothed officers pursuing him wouldn't be able to follow him inside as non-members without giving their identities away. Yeah, but wouldn't you just quietly go to the reception and be like, what's up? And just sorry for those listening i'm doing the flipping out a badge motion and being like shh don't tell anyone but i'm with the police and then just entering and then just carrying on 
This worked great for a solid two hours until the pursuing officer simply jumped a fence and then found his car in order to deduce which villa he was staying in. He then relocates again, but this time unknowingly is actually successful in shaking his pursuers off his scent. The trail went cold for a few days until Guangdong CCTV operators, who had been briefed to be extra vigilant, found him in the Zhu Hai department store on the afternoon of January the 24th. Plainclothes officers swarmed the car park of the store but hung back and waited for him to appear before they made their move. Hours passed, and Churung's car still sits idly in the car park. Growing impatient, the officers decide to make their move. They called in uniformed officers who began to surround the department store and blocked both vehicle and pedestrian exits. Churung, who had been amusing himself in a bar located inside, abandoned his car and managed to flee on foot after he rather ungracefully vaulted a wall at the rear of the building. He found himself at the Gongbai Hotel close by. How is this dude? Surely at this point you're going to be like, the police are really after me. Like, I should now just be focused on not getting caught rather than continuing with my kidnapping crimes. He called Hu Ji Shu and informed him that his paranoia was not unfounded and that he could feel the net closing in on him. Ji Shu tried to calm the increasingly erratic Chirung, who apparently by this stage was more paranoia than man. Yeah, but rightfully so. Ji Shu snuck into his hotel room that night and arranged for his brother to bring a spare change of clothes for them the following morning. The pair then took a taxi from outside the hotel, reasoning that all their cars were probably tagged and being traced, and headed for Jiang Men. All seemed calm in the taxi, and Chirung started to finally relax. His heart dropped to a resting rate for the first time in days. Everything would be fine in Jiang Men, the pair reassured themselves. It was underdeveloped, more remote, and there was basically no CCTV. They planned to lay low for a few weeks, get new clothes, new cars, and everything would be just fine. That may have been correct, but they never actually got the opportunity to find out. Just outside of Jiang Men at 12.10 in the afternoon, the taxi crossed Waihe Bridge, just on the perimeter of the city, and is pulled over what appears to be a routine traffic stop. A very mild manner traffic control officer asked the driver of the taxi to please leave the car and come to his cabin so they could check on her paperwork, to which she obliged. As soon as the door on the aforementioned cabin closed and the taxi driver was out of harm's way, dozens of SWAT officers burst from the bushes from behind barricades and out of drainage ditches. They screamed at Chirung and Hu Ji Shu to place their hands on the seats in front of them where they could be seen. Two of the officers then maneuvered around to the rear of the taxi and lined up nice clean angles of fire into the back of the criminals' heads in case there was any funny business. The pair were then dragged from the taxi, handcuffed and thrown into the back of a police van, firmly under arrest once and for all. What are they getting them for? Planning a kidnapping? Did they? Oh, the the, the all all of the guns and the bombs and the weapons. I mean, that's so much stuff that that's like a. You got to be able to go to prison forever for like importing as much explosives as in a B two rocket, right? Trial. Now that Chung was finally in custody, the police moved to dismantle his entire operation. The Hong Kong and mainland police knew everything. Chung's had been. Chung had been living as a criminal celebrity for quite some time now, hardly being subtle or incognito, and the police on both sides of the border had been expo exploiting this to gather every single piece of intelligence that they could on him, just in case he ever went back to his old ways. How about finding him about the things that he did to get all that stuff? Just because the guy who was kidnapped doesn't come forward to the police, doesn't mean the police shouldn't investigate. It's in the public safety's interest to investigate. 
As soon as word came from the Jianmen police that he was in custody, Hong Kong police launched an enormous timed operation to secure his cache of weapons and all of his associates at the exact same time all over the city so that none of them had the opportunity to be warned and flee. Mainland forces in Shenzhen, Guangdong, Zhuhai, Macau, and Jianmen did exactly the same, snatching up all of his associates and arms off the street in one perfectly timed swoop. In total, 36 criminals, including Zhurong himself, were arrested. Needless to say, Zhurong was caught red-handed and was firmly up the proverbial creek without a paddle. But this did not seem to sink into him. He was the absolute picture of arrogance during his arrest. He tried to insist that his arrest was wrongful and he was going home, complained that his cell wasn't luxurious enough, and taunted the police officers, explaining to them that they would all look like absolute knobs when he walked free. If, for no other reason, he was arrogant because he believed he would answer for his crimes in a Hong Kong court, not a mainland one's, the latter having the death penalty and the former not so. Ah, uh, okay, so, ah, uh, yeah, because of course he fled to China. So he's arrested in China. And uh, China, pew, pew, whereas Hong Kong, that's why I was quite surprised that Hong Kong had the death penalty, because they don't have the death penalty. That would be China. Chirung confessed to the kidnappings without hesitation when in custody, as he believed that he was in the clear for those crimes. He hoped that by showing remorse and repentance for something he couldn't actually be convicted for, he would be afforded leniency in line with the long-standing Chinese criminal justice principle of leniency to those who confess their crimes and severity to those who refuse to cooperate. But fortunately for Chirung, his confessing for some of the crimes he was clearly guilty of destroyed all appearances of sincerity. Chirung denied playing for the the explosives, but not his involvement with the cash altogether. His strategy here was quite blatant, to salvage his life, not his freedom, by reducing his role to that of from that of a leader and therefore the principal offender for the trading of explosives, a capital offense to that of a humble hired goon, simply guilty simply of handling explosives. Churung was a pragmatist and a survivor, and he was confident that he would be able to con continue his criminal career if he could simply avoid the death penalty and escape with his life. Ultimately, however, his luck had run out, and on the 5th of December, the following guilty verdict was returned. Quote, Defendant Churung C. Krung is guilty of illegal trading of explosives and is sentenced to death. Is guilty of kidnappings and is sentenced to imprisonment for life. Deprivation of political rights for life and confiscation of RMB 662 million. Is guilty of smuggling of arms and ammunitions and is sentenced to life, uh, imprisonment for life, deprivation of political rights for life, and confiscation of RMB 100,000. It is the decision of this court to impose capital punishment, deprivation of political rights for life, and confiscation of 662,100,000 RMB. That's a hell of a sentence. So, of the kid kidnappings, which he thought he was safe for, that's what actually gets him the death penalty. Well, bummer. After this verdict was returned, two large officers immediately flanked Chirung and ushered him out of the courtroom. With no reprieve for a last meal or to relieve himself, uh, Kurung was led straight out of the courtroom and towards the yard. No f***ing way. No. They're, they just take him outside and f***ing shoot him after the verdict? That's so intense. The opulent marble and carved wood that lines the walls of the courtroom gradually gave way to the unpainted concrete as they descended down a long staircase. Heavy steel door opened onto a drab-looking courtyard. No f***ing way. Is that really how it works? I thought that was just like, isn't it, wasn't Ceausescu killed like that? There was like some kangaroo cord and they just took him out back and shot him. It's like, f***. <laughs> Is this how it really works? Don't commit crimes in China. God damn.
A heavy steel door opened onto a drablicky courtyard. Jerung was pushed outside and was greeted by the sight of six correctional officers standing at attention with Type 53 SKS rifles all secured across their chests. The two officers who led him from the courtyard pushed him to a thick wooden stake planted firmly in the ground, secured him upright to the post, blindfolded him, and walked away. An officer then marched adjacent to the lined-up men, came to a halt with heavy stamp, and barked orders to his men. Section of Ted, shut! Make ready! Aim. Fire. A deafening chorus filled the courtyard as the six men unleashed their volley, and Chirung slumped to his knees, dead. The life and story of history's most prolific and successful kidnapper were over. And there's a little note here. I hope you will give me a little whinge now, dear audience. You know that fun fact you always see, only one man in a firing squad is given a real bullet? It's absolute bollocks. Wait, no, no. One man is... Ooh, wait. My understanding was there's like a group, let's say six men one of them has a blank the rest have real bullets so it's just that you might you know you might not have killed him the person who's been convicted but maybe this is completely wrong for starters blank rounds look very different to live bullets they have no head instead the casing extends further and roughly mimics the shape of a real bullet head and then it's pressed together at the end yeah i've seen like blanks and compared them to real ones but i always assumed that the guys the the people doing the shooting didn't know they were just they were handed loaded weapons or something even if someone else loads your rifle blank rounds produce no recoil you know if you've ever fired a live round or a blank yeah that's fair although i didn't i never thought about that i fired both live rounds and blank rounds and yeah i have to say i haven't thought about the recoil but that does make perfect sense morality To some people in Hong Kong and Guangdong province, Chirung was and remained something of a folk hero, a Robin Hood type figure who stuck it to the rich and was always generous and kind to the little guy. But does he deserve this legacy? As a humble YouTube scriptwriter, these big moral questions tend to be considered above my intellectual pay grades. But if you were to force me to pick a side, I'd come down condemning Chirung wholeheartedly. As someone who grew up exceptionally poor myself, it's easy to surrender to this very sexy, but let's be frank, frank rose-tinted image of Chirung. The man was a violent criminal who had no issues using extreme violence and torture when it suited his ends, and that's enough to earn him my contempt. Up to his death, he remained proud of both the scale and technical accomplishment of his crimes and the, as he perceived it, lack of bloodshed. He believed the van robberies were only robbing insurance companies who had money to lose and that kidnapping the rich didn't matter because they were hardly left without after losing the, as he perceived it, trivial amounts of money uh, from whom he took it. What do you think, Simon? And what does the audience think in the comment? Well, use the comments audience. I think, um... Yeah, I, often when you hear about these Robin Hood characters, like in real life, it's okay. So they basically were stealing, and they gave a small amount of that money away, and they always justified it with insurance companies, or it's insured by the government, or blah 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 blah. And it's like, well, you're always stealing money from someone. Those insurance companies are publicly public, probably publicly traded, and people have their pensions invested into all of that and all of that stuff, and then the stock goes down a tiny bit. And yes, while it's barely imperceptible, I'm sure some regular person is losing at some point. And then when it's like insured by the government, well, then everyone loses because that government's money is obviously the people's money. Um, so, and I think then when it's like they give the money away, it's so, it's it's not like, I don't know, Pablo Escobar is the one who comes to mind of a guy who actually gave away a ton of his money and built all these like football stadiums and stuff in his own like original village and stuff. But I mean, weight of things, he was a horrible monster. And weight of things here, this guy locked a guy in a box for like a week and make it makes him shit and eat in this box he's not like some ed gein mother but he's like he's not a good person 
and i don't think he should be a folk hero i also don't think he should be immediately pronounced guilty and then taken out back and shot either i think that's also insane dismembered appendices I wanted to give correct and proper context for the capital punishment judgment, but couldn't find the appropriate place for it in the main body of the script. So allow me this appendix, please, dear viewers. At face value, it appears as though Chirung was executed the day his verdict was rendered. And while this is technically true, it misses some context. Okay, good. In China, after a trial conducted by an intermediate people's court concludes with a death sentence, a double appeals process must follow. The first appeal is conducted by a high people's court if the condemned appealed to it. And since 2007, another appeal is conducted automatically, even if the condemned opposed the first appeal by the Supreme People's Court of the People's Republic of China, the SPC in Beijing, to prevent the circumstances in which the defendant is proved innocent after the death penalty and obviously irrevocable punishment has been administered. So in reality, the verdict was given after the exhaustion of this appeals process. Okay, so you go to that appeals court and you know that it's like, if they say no, that was your last shot. like the phone call from the governor in a movie, right? I, George, am heavily indebted to the scholarship of Professor Cam Wong and Zheng Ming Ming for the completion of today's script. As a writer, I always endeavor to bring you the most well-researched videos possible, but often find myself diving into areas that, frankly, are significantly above my intellectual pay grade. Books such as One Country, Two Systems, Cross-Border Crime Between Hong Kong and China by Professor Wong are invaluable sources for myself as a writer who wishes to accurately report on a complicated legal matter without having to complete yet another bachelor's degree prior. I would strongly recommend this book for anyone fancying a brain melting but fascinating insight into Hong Kong and the PRC legal systems, as well as Chinese Tycoon by Zheng Ming Ming, with the latter sadly only being available in Chinese. I also owe thanks to the police forces of Hong Kong, Shenzhen, and Zhuhai, all of whose respective data access departments were most accommodating in my requests for information, as they always are. And well, thank you, George, for going above and beyond and reading the books and accessing the data and all of this stuff. It makes for a better episode, a more researched episode, and I hope a more enjoyable episode. If you did enjoy today's episode, well, let us know in the comments below. Leave a like if you're watching on YouTube. If you're listening to this in its podcast form, it comes out in both. Why not leave a review? That would be most welcome. And as always, thank you for watching or listening.